All right, please take your Bible and turn to Psalm 119. This is the longest passage in the Bible and uh, has 176 verses. We're not going to look at many of them. <laughs> really, we're just going to look at, at one of these verses together. But uh, today we're concluding our series on the storyline of the Bible and uh, how to be better readers of God's Word. And we started the series back on January 24th, and... Uh, I pray that it has been fruitful for you in some way, and uh, certainly happy to answer any questions about anything we've looked at from these various passages and themes these last few months. I will tell you right from the outset that this sermon is not your typical sermon. In fact, I would rarely counsel someone to preach a sermon like the one I'm going to preach today, but it's going to be super practical, and in a few minutes, I'm going to give you a handout that will kind of guide us through, uh, through this, uh, this time together this morning. Well, let me read Psalm 119. Verse 18. I'll read it slowly, and I encourage you to consider it carefully as we read this together. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You may recall it in the first sermon in the series back in January, I used the example of having an internal map of a city. The fact that some people know how to get from point A to point B with great ease and never get lost and can tell people where they're driving and what they're seeing on each side of the road while they're driving from one place to another. And then other people seemingly get turned around everywhere they go and, you know, get lost on their way to Target or, or Walmart. And, uh, you know, some people really need to heavily depend on a map or even on Google Maps, and other people just, it seems to be built into their minds. And in the same way, some people are more comfortable navigating the Bible than others, and our desire has been to help all of us develop some sense of an internal map with the Bible over these last few months. And so perhaps you are more familiar with the Bible because you've even taken classes on it or you've read it multiple times from start to finish in your life, as I know many of you have done. Uh, perhaps you grew up in a Christian family and your family read the Bible together regularly and it just was part of the warp and woof of your Christian existence. And so, of course, you feel like you know how to get through the Bible and what the Bible's about and, and all this is very natural. And for others, you've been a Christian for a very short amount of time and the Bible is a very mysterious, difficult book to read and to understand. And regardless of where you are on that spectrum, we pray that God's Word will be your food, will be your delight as you take in God's Word each week, and even better, regularly throughout the week. This verse in Psalm 119, verse 18, tells us that when we read the Bible, we're setting our eyes on wondrous things, on wonderful things. And that's true because it's telling us about a wonderful God who works wonders, as Exodus 15 tells us. He is a wonder-working God. That's why when we read the Bible, we see wondrous things. It tells us the story of redemption, which itself is a wonderful, we could even say miraculous act that God takes dead people, as in Exodus or in Ezekiel, where he makes dead bones come alive. That's what God does through his word. That's a wonderful, it's a miraculous work of God. But what this passage also tells us is that the only way we're going to see these wonderful things is if God himself opens our eyes. What that tells us is that our eyes are naturally dead to the beauty of God and to the wonders of God's word. This is why when we call people, as we were praying in the pastoral prayer, 
We call people to be right with God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. What we're doing then is urging them to, to behold the beauty of God, but even that takes a work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Spiritual life is a spiritual gift from God, and so we pray that God will open people's eyes. And in here, the psalmist is saying, Lord, open my eyes. I need spiritual help in order to understand what God has said. To behold something here means to gaze upon it, to look upon it for a long time. As I'm guessing Abigail's doing with her engagement ring, right? Like she's probably sitting there, as most of you ladies have probably done, at some point you've looked at that ring and just stared at it over and over again. You're like, oh, look, in here the light is different than it used to be. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's what it means to behold something, to gaze on something, to look at it longingly, this is what we want to do with God's word. The Bible tells us here in this verse that we should care about the Bible a lot. It implicitly says, the Bible implicitly says, you should care about this book. You should read this book. You should want to read it and take it in as much as you possibly can. And so we've sought to give you a working map to help you get from point A to point B by talking about creation and the fall and redemption and the end of the story, the new creation. We've sought to describe why the problems that we see in the world are there and how the Bible addresses those needs through a work of God himself. When redemption is complete, we'll live in God's kingdom forever free from the problems of this fallen world, but we're not there yet. and So we need help in this current time in the already but not yet part of the Bible, we could say, to understand God and his word and to live for his glory and his fame. What I'm saying is that the Bible is a gracious gift from God. And I hope you believe that and I hope you love God's word. And so if it's a gracious gift, it deserves your deepest attention, your deepest efforts to accurately and regularly read it, and take it in. And so we've talked about developing biblical literacy, the ability to read the Bible with great understanding, great accuracy. And what I'm going to do this morning is try and help you know how to do that in super practical ways. Um, Perhaps many of you have learned how to play an instrument at some point in your life. And maybe you've heard, let's say you you want to play uh, the classical guitar, and you've heard of Christopher Parking, and you've watched maybe a YouTube video of him, or even seen him in a live performance, and you're like, wow, I want to play like that. That looks like an art, and it is beautiful. What Christopher Parquet would say is, yeah, it is an art, but you need to start with the science before you start with the art. And that's what I want to say about the Bible as well. Good Bible reading is probably both an art and a science, but as far as weighting it, it's much more of a science than it is an art, at least initially. And so we need to uh, engage our minds, and we need to use good skills to be able to read the Bible well. And so before I even give these suggestions, and I'm going to have you guys start giving these handouts, if you don't mind, handing out the handouts. I'll let you guys divide up as many as you would like. I just want to make sure that you understand that I'm not saying I'm the Bible reading professional in this room, and you all need as much help as you can possibly get. I need these suggestions just as much as anyone else in here, and I truly mean that. And so please don't assume that I'm I'm using these as a way to to tell you, you just need to get better. This is just terrible. You don't read the Bible better. No, I need to read the Bible better. And so I hope that, that this will help all of you as well. We don't read the Bible as a good luck charm. 
Okay, a verse a day keeps the devil away just doesn't quite ring true. And so if you've heard that before, you know, probably throw that, that idea out. The verse a day keeps the devil away. No, it does not. We need to take in big chunks of God's word, and so I hope this will be a help in doing that. Before we even get into what we should do when we sit down with the Bible, let's talk about what to do before you get your Bible out. And um, let's make sure I have my own copy of this available so I know where I'm at at all times. <clears throat> metaphorically speaking. Before you read your Bible, just five suggestions here. And the first of these is to read on a schedule. You don't want to have to decide every day that you open your Bible up, huh, what should I read today? Old Testament or New Testament? You know, story or letter, you know, New Testament letter or Old Testament story, something like that. There are lots of good Bible reading plans available for you, many of them for free online that you can print and download. And many of them have check marks next to them if that's the way you like to work and have a sense of, look, I accomplished this today. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Lots of those are available. But whatever you do, at least have like a bookmark or a reading sticker or something like that so you know where you left off the day before and you can keep picking up there the next day. Of course, uh, one of the reasons I think it's good to do that, let me just put it this way. I just said to have a Bible bookmark or a sticker or something, that assumes you have a a paper copy of the Bible. And I actually want to encourage you to do that as well, is to use a paper copy of the Bible. If you don't have one, we have plenty available for you that you can just take home. You can go and give those as gifts. Uh, A Bible on a tablet or on a phone is a good resource to have, and I regularly use them for the sake of reference. You know, they're easy to search and things like that. But Bibles have, or I'm sorry, phones have other things on them. Tablets have other things on them. Your calendar, your reminders, your you know, little checklists of things to do, the internet itself, your email, your messages, all of these come to one place, and it's so easy to be like, oh, I love this verse. Let me go Instagram about it. And then you go put it on Instagram, and then you look through 100 other pictures, and you think, now, what was I doing? Oh, the Bible. I don't have time for that anymore because I just spent 20 minutes looking through Instagram. And this is just the way our minds are wired. And so if you use a paper Bible, and I'll get to the phone part in a second, If you use a paper Bible, you're far less likely to go down that road mentally. Uh, I'm talking about this from personal experience. I'm not condemning anyone for uh, distractions. I'm saying our brains love distractions. Our brains are wired for distraction. And so uh, take a Bible home if you don't have one and and use a paper copy of the Bible for good reading. So that leads to a, a larger point, number three here, on the preparing for Bible reading is remove all distractions. By that, I mean, it might mean you need to put your dog away. It might mean you need to put your kids away, whatever that means. Uh, It might mean you need to turn off your phone and put it in a drawer in a different room and then lock that room, (laughs) make it really difficult for you to be distracted is all I'm trying to say there. Um, I don't want to turn this into a a rant against phones. I have one. Actually, it's not in my pocket. It's in my office. But phones are super addicting, and they're designed to be that way. People at Apple and wherever else they make phones (laughs) want you to be addicted because that makes them more money, all right? I am not being cold in saying that. That is their job, is to make your phone as addicting as possible. So put it away so you can read the Bible. It's so much more valuable. And if you want me to rant about this, talk to me afterwards. I can rant a long time about this. But be self-aware about your habits, your Bible reading habits, your TV watching habits, your phone scrolling habits, all this. Put things away and then read your Bible. Recently, I saw a man, I think last Sunday night, if I remember right, just sitting in a lawn chair along LaGrange Road, just staring off in the distance. And I thought, I want to be like that. I want to be able to just sit still and stare in the distance 
and contemplate and even be bored. We are not good at being bored. And that makes it hard for our brains to slow down enough to read the Bible. And I'm being totally serious. If we can't slow our brains down, we're not going to be able to open our eyes and behold wondrous things out of God's word. So enjoy sitting still like that man I saw last Sunday night. One of the reasons to use a paper Bible is so you can mark it. I know lots of people don't like to do this, but what I would say is we will give you a free Bible so you can mark it. And what, uh, what ways should you mark? What tools should you use to mark with? Uh, this is number four here, have marking instruments available. You can use markers. You can use crayons. You can use colored pencils. That's my personal preference. So, Eddie, if you could go to this next slide here. I'm just going to show you here a page in one Bible that I have, and this may or may not show up. It's not going to show up. So let me, let me use a water bottle here to kind of point a few things out here. Uh, so I have here probably five or six different colors. And again, some of them are not showing up super well on this screen. But let me just start here. We'll go like Vanna White here. I'm just going to start here and go across. So this is like a, lo- a light bluish green here. It says, I lifted up my eyes again and behold. The reason I marked that is that that phrase also shows up right here and right here and like five, like right there, several other places. You can probably see them without me even seeing them. Several places I'm just marking the repetition there in one color so that it pops out at me that Zechariah wrote with a particular structure to what he was writing. All of these orange here, it says my servant, the branch. Why did I mark that in orange? Orange in my system here, just design your own system. You don't have to use my colors. Orange always means that it's either alluding to some previous passage or that it's quoted later on. Where is that quoted? My servant, the branch, is referring to, I think, Isaiah 11, if I remember right. So what I'm saying is Zechariah is interacting with other Old Testament writers, and I just wanted to, to make that pop out at me. And then later on here, he says, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That's from Micah 4 or 5. And so basically, I'm saying the prophets are constantly interacting with each other. They had each other's writings and, and they were interacting with each other that way. So orange, in this case, is just pointing to something later or, or before. This brand plucked from the fire, that's from the book of Jude. So Jude had Zechariah in front of him and was interacting with that. Uh, let's see. Red here, the Lord of the whole earth, or the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro through the, through the earth. Red is kind of a catch-all for talking about God, some element of God's nature or a work of God. Uh, so that's what the red is. The green that you see here and up there is promises. So here it's Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men. I can't even read it because I'm so close to it. And something cattle within it, I think it says. Uh, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. So these are promises that the Bible kind of carries forward from there. Let's see, I think there's one other color. I'm skipping here. That might be all of them. I think that's all the colors on that page. But what I'm saying is this is just one page of that particular copy of the Bible I have, and it helps me every time I use that Bible to interact well with, with that Bible. Like It just feels like I'm already a step ahead in reading that passage because I've marked it and I know what it's talking about and what it's doing. So use a paper copy of the Bible. That's, you need that, but then you also want to have good instruments at hand. Maybe it's just a pencil where you can underline and circle and draw lines across the page. That's very good. That will help you when you see this phrase repeated one time and another, in one page of Isaiah, there's a, a part where uh, the same phrase is marked four times in a yellow color. Again, just to kind of make that, that exact phrase pop out off the page at me. Just use a variety of colors that will help you in that passage. All right. 
Number five, read with a friend. This is getting you ready to open your Bible. And by reading with a friend, I mean maybe you have a friend five miles away or 5,000 miles away who wants to read with you. And so maybe you're going through the same reading program together, and then maybe once a week you get on Zoom or on some similar program and talk to each other about what you've read. Or maybe it's you actually read with another person, like literally in the same room. And so you get together for a cup of coffee or for lunch sometime, and you just say, let's read through the book of 1 John together. It'll take like 15 minutes. And so one person's reading while the other person's eating or drinking, and then you switch. And that just gives you such benefit to be able to talk about what you're reading and what it says and and how you can apply it together. And so this Saturday, we're reading through Ecclesiastes by having more than one person here. Again, we could urge you to read through Ecclesiastes on your own. I would urge you to do that. But what's likely to happen? You're going to get distracted because you're in your own home and there's nobody to make you sit back down. And, and then you don't have anybody to talk to it, about it afterwards. And so uh, I think you'll be encouraged by reading through Ecclesiastes together this Saturday. All right, talking about actual Bible reading. So now you've sat down, you have your Bible open. Now what do you do? Here are some suggestions to help move forward move toward better Bible reading. So number one is pray for spiritual understanding, and this comes directly from our text. Open my eyes. That is a prayer to God. I need spiritual light. I need spiritual illumination, and only God can provide that for me. And so pray that God would open your eyes. Know that you are prone to wander. You know that you are bent, that you are blind to your own blind spots. That's why they call them blind spots. Uh, you have your own perceptions about the world you live in and your, your own priorities and your schedule for that day. And so you're asking, Lord, challenge me, convict me, reveal yourself to me through your word, delight me through who you are. Secondly, is take notes on what you read. Maybe you already have a journal, just a you know, 99-cent school, back-to-school journal will do the trick. Or you can go spend 40 bucks to get a really nice moleskin leather journal with all these extra features and tabs and all. That's fine. Just use what you have and, and make, the use, make use of it that way. Um, especially if you're easily distracted, reading a passage and then marking about it, writing, it, writing about it, and then reading the next sec- section of the passage and taking some notes on it, going back and forth can really help you keep your mind engaged and give you something to think about and pray over later on during the day. It's possible you struggle to read, and that is no problem. It's nothing to be ashamed of. What I would say is use an audio Bible, and we can give you good recommendations on that. You may have it on a CD that you can have in your car even while you drive across the country, or it may be something that you can just download on your phone. But even if you read well, having a good audio Bible will help you keep your mind engaged while you read, having, having somebody else read it to you. I've never seen the time go as fast as it has since I got up here. This is insane. I've got like 20 more points to go here. So bear with me and I will fly. And you have this handout and you can go back and listen to the audio online later on. Uh, Read large portions at a time. What I mean by that is it's good to read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5, for instance. But what about two times a week going and reading all of 1 Thessalonians? And then that'll make that little passage that you studied that day or the day before take on a whole new meaning and you'll be able to read it in its context. And so read a big portion of the Bible. It'll take, like I said, probably 45 minutes to read through all of Ecclesiastes on Saturday. So you can do that just setting aside a time where you might typically watch a TV show or, or read a, a book or a magazine. Maybe set a little side, time aside to read a big chunk of the Bible. While you're reading, identify the genre of what you're reading. 
So in other words, pay attention to how this, this passage is written. So some passages are written as poetry. Some passages are written as a story. Some passages are written as a letter. You just want to be aware that you read an email differently than you read a newspaper, differently than you read a novel, differently than you read a textbook. All of those are different genres of writing. And you know, the Bible itself contains a wide variety of genres. Consider the contexts of what you read. And there are always multiple contexts. And so, Eddie, I cannot remember what the next slide is. Can you show me? Okay, now you can go back. Why don't you go back two slides, just for the sake of not distracting. Perfect, thank you. Uh, Multiple contexts. So, for instance, what's the historical context? Was Paul writing this letter to a church that was drinking the Kool-Aid of false teaching? Well, that's going to be a different feel to that letter than if he's writing to churches where a wide number of people in the congregation are being persecuted for their faith. Maybe both of those are together, but what I'm saying is typically there's one emphasis over the other. So what's the historical context? Why is he writing this? Maybe David's writing this psalm while he's running for his life from his own son, like Psalm 3. Uh, So context matters, though, uh, with regard to how you interpret it. And then you want to understand what's the near context. In other words, what came right before it and what came right after it? So let me give an example of how this matters. In uh, Matthew 18 is a, is a verse, is a statement that we often use to encourage people to go to prayer meetings. And it says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. Good verse. Sounds like it's a good verse about prayer. But what comes before it and what comes after it? That verse is actually in the context of dealing with sin biblically in the church. And I was thinking of this because of that upcoming Sunday school class. So the two or three in that verse, where two or three are gathered, is referring to the fact that when someone is stuck in sin and perhaps is blind to it, what you need to do is take one or two other people with you to help encourage that person to repent and believe the gospel, basically. And so that two or three gathered together is referring to church discipline, is referring to confronting other sinners out of love for them. And the fact that you're gathered together to confront this person, to encourage them to repent, it's encouraging to know that where two or three are gathered, there am I in their midst. When you go to do this hard work of spiritual discipleship, what church discipline is, the Lord is with you. The Lord is encouraging you. The Lord is strengthening you for that very important task. And so that verse, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst, takes on all kinds of new understanding and and glory comes from that. It's beautiful to remember, oh, the Lord is with me in this hard task of talking to someone about their sin. Is the Lord with us when two or three are gathering together to pray? Yes, but I'm just saying that's not what that verse is saying. So the way you know what that verse is saying is by reading what comes before it and what comes after it. Read the, the far context as well. By that, I mean the context of the whole book or the context of the whole Old Testament or the context of the whole Bible. And a good Bible study will help you, uh, study Bible, I should say, will help you understand the context well. Read and reread the text. I'm just saying maybe you use a variety of translations there um, to help you get the, the nuance of a passage. Look for repetition in the passage. That's what I had up on the screen a moment ago. Maybe you have the, those kind of light bluish phrases all highlighted so you can see where it's repeated. This just helps you understand the structure of a passage There are no wasted words in the Bible. We believe that God breathed out the whole Bible by inspiration. That's what we call that. That's what the Bible calls that. 
And that means that God doesn't waste words. And so there's nothing that's an accident. If there's a passage that's repeated over and over again, it's on purpose. And so look for those repetitions. Consider how a passage relates with another passage. So you could ask yourself, in other words, what passages come to mind when I read this? And this is where you can go to this other slide here, probably two slides ahead, Eddie. Uh, So I have here a screenshot of a website called literalword.com, esv.literalword.com. The reason I want to encourage you to do this is this especially, to use this resource, is this is especially helpful in seeing how a passage relates with another one. So there's a passage in Jeremiah, I'm just going to off the top of my head here, that talks about the chaff being blown away like by the wind. And you might think, man, I know I've read that before, but I can't figure out where. But what Jeremiah is doing is interacting with and quoting Psalm 1. And so you type in chaff, wind, or something like that, and here it comes, and you see Psalm 1 verse 5, I think is is verse 4 perhaps, show up there on your screen. So esv.literalword.com. You can go to the next slide, Eddie. What we have here is I typed in the word crooked generation here. You can see why my phone is in my office. It's dying. So... um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 says, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Well, then Acts 2 and Philippians 2 both refer back to Deuteronomy 32. So what I'm saying is, this is a resource that you can just easily access on your phone, which you shouldn't have with you when you read your Bible, but I'm just kidding. But when you go back to other resources, this is a good one to use. Uh, Let me give one other example here. You read Jeremiah 2, this is the Lord... Uh, people have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Then you read John 4, where Jesus says, if you had asked of me, I would have given you living water. And then you read Revelation 7, that says the Lord will lead his people to living water for all eternity. All that is looking back to Jeremiah chapter 2. It's often difficult to know that, but this kind of a resource, esv.literalword.com, will help you get there and begin to see these connections and how these passages relate to each other. I am going to move quickly here, so put on your seatbelt if you don't have it on yet, all right? Number 10, let clear passages interpret less clear passages. Some passages are crystal clear. Some passages maybe are a little murky. It looks like it even contradicts a different passage. Know in your mind, believe in your heart. The Bible never contradicts itself. And so if you have that firmly fixed in your mind, then use the clear passages to interpret those less clear passages. Ask good questions. Who? What, when, where, why, how, when you read this passage? Why is he writing it? When was it written? Where were they living? How should they obey this command? What were the circumstances behind this passage being written in the first place? And closely related to that, follow the pronouns. Say, who is saying this? When it says, we went from there to there in the book of Acts, who's the we? Where's the there? Where were they starting? Where were they going? Uh, Who is he talking about? What is he talking about? Matthew 4, 9 says, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these things. That sounds like a great verse to put on a billboard, except it's Satan saying it to Jesus. So no, that's not a good verse to put on a billboard. Understand who is the I and who is the you, and the pronouns make a big difference in that passage and in countless others. In doing this, we're trying to identify the main message or truth of the passage. That's what we've been trying to do in every one of these steps so far, is identify the main truth of this passage. And so don't get discouraged if this is hard. This is hard work. This is the hardest part of preaching often, is figuring out what is the point of this passage that sets it apart from every other passage. And, uh, but asking this question helps us 
not just drift our eyes along the page and feel like we've done our, our good duty that day. Consider how a passage connects to the gospel. And so this is going to happen in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes it's going to be making a promise that later on is fulfilled in Christ, or sometimes you're going to read the passage that fulfills a previous promise. Sometimes you're going to see a theme like worship or covenant or kingdom or any number of other themes, probably 20 or 30 major themes plus a whole bunch of minor themes that run throughout the Bible, and they all culminate and glorify Christ. And so be looking for these kinds of connections. This is its own Sunday school series talking about how a passage relates to a gospel. So I realize this is difficult, but I can give you some good resources on this if you have questions about it. But it's important that we not read the Bible as a Jewish person would read the Bible, for instance. If you're reading Psalm 19, you need to know how that passage points us forward to Christ and his redemption, not just read it the way that someone who doesn't believe in Jesus would read it. After you've done the hardest part of the work, which is everything we've listed up to this point, then number 15, consider how the passage applies to your life. This is where we typically start, but I want to make it where we typically end. Don't skip this point, because if we do skip it, then we're just hearers of the word, not doers of the word. James tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So don't skip this point, but don't start here either. Uh, what I would say is we're often inclined to see the Bible as an instruction manual. You know, 10 tips for living a good life. Daniel was not living the good life when he was thrown into the lion's den in our passage last week. Jesus was not living the good life when he was hanging on a cross. Paul was not living a good life when he was shipwrecked and being tortured and being lied about and slandered and all these things. That's not the good life. The Bible is not about living the good life. And so don't ask that question. Ask yourself instead, um, how can I love my family better as a result of reading this passage? Who at church do I need to go and develop a relationship with as a result of reading this passage? What grace, like humility or brokenness over my own sin, do I need to develop as a result of reading and understanding this passage? How can I uh, put this passage into work, into the context of my job or living in a college dorm or an apartment building? These are the kinds of questions we should ask once we know what a passage is saying. And let me give you three ways to move forward after you've read this, after you've read a passage. One is to read good books on the subject. You kind of knew that was coming because you look at who's preaching this. But um, basically, how can I take what I've read and get better at reading? Lots of good books available. I'm happy to give you references to those or ask another good friend or Tim Challies is a, is a Christian blogger. He often has good examples of books to read or even ones not to read. And so you could look those up. Talk with someone about what you read, whether it be your roommate or your spouse or a friend. Again, it could be in person or online. But talk to someone, ask them what they think this means, tell them what you learned how you're seeking to change. And consider memorizing a passage. Maybe you seek to, to memorize one verse a week. That's awesome. One verse a month is awesome. Some of you have tons of time. You can memorize a chapter a month. That's a great goal. You fill all kinds of time while you're standing in a grocery line or sitting in a, in a car on the interstate and you're just sitting there in traffic. Pull out your prescription memory sheet and let God's word soak into your mind. This is a great way to fill our minds with truth, and to take what we've read and let it just seep into the pores of our bodies and our minds spiritually. God's word is a priceless treasure, and it deserves this kind of effort. So I hope that this will in some way help you see the glory and the beauty of God's word. Just over a decade ago, a brother and sister in Great Britain were cleaning out their parents' attic after both of their parents had passed away. 
and they were throwing away all kinds of items that were surely by that time only of sentimental value. But one thing that they found in their parents' small, musty attic kind of stood out to them, and it was about a 16-inch tall Chinese vase. They were like, you know, we should probably not throw this away. Let's go take it to an auction house. So they took it there, and to their astonishment, the person, I don't know what he's called, at the auction house said, this is a rare find. This is probably going to sell for $1.9 million. Can you imagine finding something like that in your attic? That would be amazing. And so they gave it to this auction house to auction off. And 30 minutes after it went up for sale, it sold for $85 million. This thing that they considered throwing in the trash. Nah, we don't need this. It's just a vase. No, it's a very rare vase. $85 million vase. What I'm saying, Christians, is that God's word is a priceless treasure, far more than anything you're going to find in a musty attic. So go read your Bibles well. Put the effort into this. Study it with zeal. Read the book with joy and love for God and for him giving you this word. The Bible reveals to you that he created you and that he rescues you from your sin. This is the story of our redeeming God who gives meaning to our lives who gives joy in our sorrow, and all this is found in God's word. And so I pray that we would all go pray that the Lord would open our eyes so we can behold wondrous things out of his law. Now Josh will come and pray that he will give us, the Lord will give us wisdom as we read.